one of the things that people, at least in my tradition, have thrown around is this phrase, well, you know, don't put God in a box. And on one level, that's very, very true. But on another level, I want to say, like, we always will put God in a box. The question is, will we allow that box to be broken? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What the Faith. That clip you just heard comes from Steve Weens, who is our guest for today's episode. Steve is a spiritual teacher, writer, and pastor who helps people reconstruct their faith after their theological foundations have crumbled. Steve is the author of a handful of Christian books, including his latest book that just came out in April called Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. We really, really loved having Steve on our podcast. He is such a joy and such a positive person, and we really hope you enjoy this conversation. You know, I was one of those kids who was born in the church, basically. Um, my parents took me to church all the time. And like, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, very evangelical, conservative upbringing. And I never really rejected it, but I think I never really accepted it. I was always a really curious kid with lots and lots of questions. And um, I didn't find too many people who were willing to be with me in my questions, which is unfortunate, you know. Um, but um, but I'm grateful, I think, for a lot of, there's a lot of people that love me really, really well. Um, but then probably sometime in my, I'm almost 50 now, so I'll, I'll turn 50 big, big birthday coming up in the fall. Um, but I... It, probably sometime in my early 30s started a period of really deconstruction of, um, you know, some of the certainty that I was brought up with. And I started to embrace more mystery, more ecumenic, ecumenism. Is that, is that the word? Ecumenism? <laughs> um, and so, you know, now I'm in a place where I think um, I am, I am still a Christian and I just, I love borrowing from all the really, really major faith traditions where I find truth. What are some of the kind of changes you went through when you were kind of more, when you started exploring? Well, I think on a really basic, like it's kind of embarrassing at first, you know, at first it was like in my late, in my early twenties, I had to <laughs> deconstruct the, the silly patriarchal idea that only men could be leaders and speakers, you know? Um, and I laugh at that because it sounds so ridiculous to me now, but back then um, the thing I had to deconstruct was that like sort of what I read in the Bible was the literal truth, no matter what, there was no nuance to it. There was no, um, there was no cultural context to it. It was just what it said is what it said. And, and of course, as a white male, I mean, I benefited from most of what I thought it said. So I wasn't going to be too quick to challenge that. But I met, I met this woman who really challenged me on it. And I ended up falling in love with her and marrying her. And, um, but then uh, very quickly dipping my toes in the waters of listening to women speak, being led by women and it became a no-brainer. Uh, more recently, it's been around LGBTQIA inclusion, just coming to the um, 
the realization and and uh, through experience, but also through looking at the scriptures and seeing that, and like like many things, our preconceived bias uh, is what we really believe is the truth, <laughs> not really what's even there. So I think a lot of my ongoing deconstruction is more about realizing that I've I've really been, uh, and and this is true for all of us, right? But like especially for most Christians that grew up in my, with my background, we were socialized to believe certain things, but those, those things we believed were really just a construct of belief. Like most things are, and we took them as complete orthodoxy. And um, it's actually really freeing to understand, Oh, that's, that's really a construction. And the best we can do is a construction. Like what I believe now is a construction which doesn't believe that there isn't a God and that there isn't uh, even on some level things that are really, really true. It just means that I, I need to carry humility enough to believe that I, I don't grasp all of it yet, you know, um, until I get into a fight on Twitter and I think that I do grasp all of it, you know, <laughs> and then back to the drawing board, right? How would you say your deconstruction has impacted your community when it comes to faith? And by community, what, what do you mean? I guess the, just the people around you, you know, has your deconstruction of kind of, um, you know, changing your beliefs on a few, you know, topics in Christianity, has that impacted, um, you know, the people you're closest with or? You know, um, my, my inner circle, uh, my wife, um, my closest friends, I, I, at this stage of my life, I think the people that I'm closest to, um, carry the same values of mystery over certainty and mystery over mastery when it comes to faith. And so, but I would say the next level out, like my, my father-in-law passed away this, this last August and I loved him and he loved me and we couldn't have seen things more differently. <laughs> I mean, like, and he just in a really, he just needed to argue with a lot of people, but with me especially. So we would, we would go round and round about politics and religion. And the latest thing really was LGBTQIA inclusion. And he would try to engage with me on it. Um, and at times I could, and other times I just, I just couldn't um, because I didn't, I, and again, oh my gosh, I love him and loved him. And he didn't quite have a container big enough to be curious um, enough, I think, at that point in his life to where that would be even an acceptable idea. So there was some conflict there in our families um, and with my own family of origin. Um, we don't agree on that particular issue, but um, we've been able to have conversations about it in ways that don't, that, that don't send us both, you know, fleeing to cluster around our our poles of belief again. Um, so it, now I'm a pastor. I don't know if you know that, but in our church community, we're actually going through the inclusion discussion discernment process right now. And so I would say, you know, the majority of the people in our church already are inclusive, but we're part of a denomination that has not been and isn't. And so we're going through that. And so that has some, that carries some conflict and definitely carries uh, a lot of emotional weight for a lot of people. 
conflict's really understandable. I think whenever we are faced with change, it can be really difficult. What do you think, though, are some of the dangers if we uh, kind of avoid that deconstructing of our beliefs? Well, I think if we avoid uh, deconstructing anything we believe, then we avoid growing and we avoid evolving. Um, you know, the Paschal mystery, this is part of why I'm still a Christian, is the Paschal mystery is that the cycle of the universe is birth, death, and resurrection. That's what we see in the seasons. I mean, I'm looking outside my backyard, my willow tree is gonna start blooming pretty soon, but we expect it to do that. Like we, when springtime comes, we, we expect leaves to start coming in. And when fall comes, we expect those leaves to fall down to the ground. Um, we expect our kids to grow up and pass through puberty and move out of the house at some point in time. And so it's a little, um, it's a little interesting or curious that we maybe think that we're going to arrive at a certain belief system and stay there. Um, I think one of the things that people, at least in my tradition, have thrown around is this phrase, well, you know, don't put God in a box. And on one level, that's very, very true. But on another level, I want to say, like, we always will put God in a box. The question is, will we allow that box to be broken so that we can build a bigger one? And then that will be broken, right? So the danger, I think, of not being willing to deconstruct is that we're just letting our preconceived biases um, and our implicit bias lead the way and not only lead the way, but we, it's, it's dangerous that we become not even aware that what we're saying is the absolute, utter orthodox truth um, is, is really, again, it's just our implicit bias. And so to the degree that we hold on to those without evolving, without deconstructing, and then reconstructing, we'll just stay, I think, we won't grow and, and, and we'll just stay within that small closed system of our social construct. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, uh, you know, a center focus of your work has been on, you know, helping people who have been spiritually hurt by theology. Um, how would you say that those biases have played into that? And uh, how, how did you kind of become passionate about helping people who have been spiritually hurt? Oh, what a delicious question. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I think I've always, like when I was a really little kid, do you know the little pill bugs, little roly polies that you'd find in the, on the ground? Uh, I remember like picking them up and putting them in, in my pocket because I was afraid that people would step on them, you know? So I would, I would, I would sadly kill them in my pocket rather than having people step on them. But, the, but my motivation was, was to get them out of harm's way. And I think, I, so I think I've always had this, this baseline of um, rooting for the underdog and creating space for the underdog. I, I was a severe stutterer when I was a kid, up until I was maybe 13 or 14. And so, you know, that's a disability that no one, I mean, really, no one knows how to approach you when you start talking and you start stuttering, they immediately feel really uncomfortable and then they make you feel uncomfortable because they try to finish your sentences. And I think that, um, that, that experience of having my voice not be able to 
come out in the way that I wanted it to come out. And when it did come out, it felt broken. I think that gave me at least some ability to empathize with those who don't have a voice in culture and society and who get, and that may be overstretching it, but, but I think that that's part of it, you know? So when I, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a man in our church who uh, just came out as transgender and he's about, well, she's about 60. So a woman in our church that just came out as transgender. And um, I was in the room when she told the first group of people at our church, she had told me before, but, and I was very like, you know what I mean? Like every, all my nerves were heightened. Like how are people, it was a small group, but how are people going to respond to this? How is this going to go? Because there was even a couple of people in the room that, you know, uh, probably are more conservative on that, on the end of the spectrum. And, and they responded so beautifully and so well. Um, and so like, oh, you know, my shoulders dropped again, but like that, um, I think because the Bible has been so weaponized against people of color, any, any minority group, anyone that's not, um, that doesn't benefit from, from white supremacy, patriarchy, like I do, um, I have felt passionate about not, okay, not being a voice for those people. No, no. Uh, um, creating a place where they can express their voice and sort of fighting for the equality of uh, who they already are. Does that make sense? And that's so delicate to say, right? Because again, no one needs, no one in minority in a minority position needs uh, someone else to be their voice um but maybe some champions to say oh my gosh have you heard this voice i mean she's fantastic right so like do you remember the super bowl halftime show this year you know jay Lo and shakira and it was so amazing and i got on twitter and i saw all the i mean there was all this outrage from sort of christian feminists and which is great. And then I, one of my friends, um, this woman, Latinx pastor, she was like, what are you doing? You know? And so uh, to some of these people who were expressing such outrage that why, you know, why is this rule being sexualized and why do these women have to use their bodies to, and she had a completely different perspective on it because she grew up in Columbia and uh, how she learned to dance and move her body. And so I brought her on my podcast and we had a fascinating conversation, right? Um, and so I don't know. I'm just, I, I just, um, I'm always so curious to hear the other perspective. And I think we're better when, and I don't want to sound, make me sound myself like I always, frankly, I, I'm sure I don't always, you know, <laughs> but when I'm thinking in the way that I want to be thinking, I, I am curious about hearing the other's perspective. And when, when we open ourselves up to another perspective, what kind of, what does that mean for us? Like, what can that, how does that benefit us, would you say? Well, we talked about being open to deconstructing uh, previously, right? And I, I actually think that's the only way that we can. Um, we tend to think that we've arrived at the things that we believe and think through careful reasoning, right? 
that's that's how we think but no but 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 the truth is again i'm repeating myself but implicit bias is leading the way and we've just we just believe what we believe because because it benefits us probably and more research really doesn't usually help sometimes it does but when i can sit and listen to someone else's journey and their story and when i can drop my defenses even when maybe i have something to apologize for or something to lose um by offering um, a chance to have someone else share their perspective. Um, I end up expanding because the truth is, and this is a truth about Buddhism that I love so much is that the illusion is that we're individuals that just do things that only have effects on ourselves, but really we're so interconnected. And so when we hear the honest perspective and story of someone else, we expand and we become even more than uh, we were before. And when we can get in tune with that, that expansion from listening to the voice of another, even when we disagree, um, then we, we are moving in harmony with the rhythm of the universe and how it should be. It's like things start dancing together in the way that they should. And so, um, but that's a very difficult thing to do, to have that kind of conversation where you're not patronizing someone else or where you're not just debating someone else, where you're really listening with curiosity and extending hospitality and um, understanding that um, this other person and their story and their perspective will bring you, me, to, to greater levels of humanity and interconnectedness and joy even. Um, but that takes work, you know, it, it takes work. And this is why mindfulness is, I think, so, so important. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to get into that next. Um, you know, you, you mentioned about expanding and breaking, you know, the box. Like we often, you know, say, yeah. don't put God in the box. How, how does mindfulness um, play into you know, this, this rebuild and breaking down our biases? Well, um, so mindfulness is, um, it's a bit of a tricky even word because part of it is that our mind, you know, our, our brains are really working hard and can only do really one thing, can only solve problems. And it does that by using dualism. Right, so dualism is this understanding that, and you need dualism. It's not a it's not a bad thing, um, but it's only useful in insofar as when. So dualism says that everything is reduced to two uh, opposing categories: right and wrong, left and right, up and down, um, day and night. Which is fine if you are trying to get directions to the grocery store because you do need to turn left and you do need to turn right. But it's not so good if you're trying to understand the perspective of someone you don't understand. So, so your mind is stuck in this really prehistoric loop of when you encounter something that's different, your mind has like a big signal that says danger, danger, danger. And that sends maybe cortisol through your body because you're going to run or you're going to fight or you're going to freeze. And that's just our brain doing what our brain does. What mindfulness does is allows us um, to train 
our minds that they don't always get to be in charge. That when we can center down into what our bodies know and even deep into our souls, then we can have a more integrated approach and we can realize that fighting or fleeing or um, freezing aren't the only options. And that these two categories that, you know, that we can, like back to the Super Bowl halftime show, right? I mean, it's so silly, right? But this is where it is. So J-Lo and Shakira dancing in front of millions and millions of people is either, you know, totally sexualized or it's something else. But um, if we can center down into the moment that we're in talking to someone else who has, who has a different perspective, like this Latinx pastor that I was talking to, then I realized that I was like, let's say, I mean, I wasn't really, but let's say I was triggered by watching the Super Bowl halftime show. Mindfulness allows you to dial into the impermanence of that feeling. I'm triggered, it's rising, and now it's going to fall. And then later on to get curious about why it was triggered. So um, gosh, that's a pretty long ex explanation, but essentially mindfulness allows you as a whole person to not be so hijacked by your dualistic brain, which is always trying to keep you safe and always trying to point you away from the things that it feels like is dangerous. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, some of the best things in life are when we move toward the thing that is quote unquote dangerous because we'll grow, we'll evolve. It's interesting how it's, it seems like it's like mindfulness has a lot to do with kind of almost like harnessing dualism where like dualism tries to keep us safe. Like if you get burned by fire and then you're like, oh, fire is bad, but still fire gives you warmth. So you got to get close to it. And similarly with spirituality where oftentimes people can get hurt by um, a harmful theology and then try to stay away from it and then try to have that mindfulness. Now, how would you say mindfulness kind of plays into helping people hurt by theology and also for people who are hurt to practice mindfulness? Yeah, so let's look at a, <clears throat> like a practice, like meditation, okay? So we sit in our, in our seat or we sit on our chair with our feet flat on the ground and and we start breathing and we set our timer for 15 minutes, you know, and then we start thinking about the groceries or we start thinking about the email or we start thinking about, you know, my butt that hurts or whatever it is that we start thinking about. And then as soon as we become aware that we're not centering on our breath, we're not focusing on our breath, we just return to our breath. Okay. So when we learn to do that more and more, then when we are triggered by something else, like let's say someone... Uh, is at a funeral and their beloved cousin died. And this, this happened to this happened to some of my friends a couple years ago. Uh, sorry, it wasn't their cousin, but this this family died in a car crash because and they were they were moving like from and it was a family of five, three little kids, mom and dad, and they got they got hit by a truck by a like a 18 wheeler and died. And at the funeral, the um the pastor said something like, you know, these, this, this happened so that God could be glorified. And we don't know why God had to be glorified by this, but that's just the answer. And my friend 
um, didn't, but wanted to stand up in that moment and basically object with within that funeral. Mindfulness teaches us when we're triggered in that, and now maybe in that moment, he should have said something, right? It's not about saying it or not saying it, but let's say someone that is really, really in a heightened, hyper aroused spiritual abuse. That's what happened to them when they grew up. And that thing, that, that one statement is going to take them out. Mindfulness can allow you to reconnect with your body, reconnect with where you are, reconnect with the fact that you're safe, even though this, what was said just isn't safe. And so it's a, it's to say it's a technique is, is not quite right. Um, but it's a way in all the moments of our lives when our feelings are going to sweep us out to sea and drown us. It is a way for us to return to our breath, return to reality, return to the fact that this feeling I'm having right now is impermanent. It's going to rise and fall. Um, and it doesn't make, it doesn't mean you don't get triggered, but it does mean you can move through that feeling of being triggered sooner and remember that, that you out you're that you're safe and that you're not in danger and that you can leave that place and and return to safety does that make sense uh steve i'm interested to know how did you become interested specifically in mindfulness was it through kind of your own personal experience or just being a pastor yeah that's a good question i mean again i think i i was always so um i've always been so curious um about the nature of trauma, you know, um, because I think I've experienced some, and also I've sat with people who have such trauma, right? And I've done a lot of cognitive therapy in my life, right? A lot of talk therapy, and it's really, really good. It's really, really helpful. But I, I mean, dating all the way back to, I mean, for more than 30 years, I've, I've been in therapy, and, and I, I think it's so good. And I want to say, and I just found that it wasn't quite enough for me and it wasn't quite enough for people that I would sit with, you know, like, and I'm not a therapist, but even if I would sort of ask people, what's your therapist say about that or whatever. And I just realized that it, it, it wasn't touching all the bases. And so, gosh, maybe 15 years ago, I would, I started reading Thich Nhat Hanh. And I read a book called um, uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ. Have you heard of that book? I mean, it's, it's fantastic, right? And I began to see that some of the beautiful truths that he was talking about were very, very, and again, this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, were very consistent with my understanding of Christ. And so, you know, I think, I think it started there and then it moved to how do we, how do I help myself beyond therapy when therapy doesn't help? And then, um, yeah, through through there's another book called The Yamas and Niyamas by Deborah Adele, and it's it's like you know the ten jewels of yogic thought, which are these practices that are designed to, and they're like nonviolence and restraint and some of these things that are that are designed to get us out of like out of just our minds because. The kind of Christianity I grew up with was all about what you believe, and as long as you say you believe it, you're fine. But I, I just, I observed in my own self and in lots of people who claim to believe lots of things, I observed um, they're just as angry as anyone else is. They're just as unkind as anyone else is. At times, more unkind than 
other people. And so I, I began to observe like th- that's just this, this set of beliefs that it's all about what you ascribe to in your mind. It's just not enough. Um, and I'm much more curious about what does it mean for people to start being more kind? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and I was always taught like, it's, you know, it's not your good deeds that saves you. So, um, and okay, whether it is or isn't, I, I don't know. But like that, that became almost like an excuse to be an asshole. <laughs> you know, like I'm a Christian asshole because it's not my deeds that are, that saves me. So, okay. And that was just so unsatisfying. You know, and so I think mindfulness essentially is a way to, to bring back together that which has been torn apart, which is like body, mind, soul, and practice, right? Because it's really all about practice. Um, and it's something that, that genuinely works. I think that's really interesting, just coming from my perspective of having left uh, theology. And there, there's sometimes it's an interesting disconnect between, I feel like myself and other Christians, um, or myself not identifying as Christian, although I do share very similar value systems. And then there's disconnect of, of belief almost. Um, what do you think, how do you think mindfulness can help people who, um, whether it's, you know, atheist, agnostic to Christian or across other types of religion, whether it's Judaism or Buddhism, how do you think that can really help people connect with each other? Wow. Well, yeah, first of all, you know, mindfulness is simply good practice, right? For anyone, regardless of theological beliefs, I think, um, certainly Sam Harris, you know, one of the most famous and brilliant atheists around right now, huge mindfulness practitioner. So, um, I think that's, and that's, I think another reason why I love it is because it doesn't, it's not owned by any one belief system or one religious tradition. Right. Um, and, but I think if it is a mechanism for disabling dualistic thinking when it's harmful, I think mindfulness can lead us toward each other because it'll, it allows us to not be so afraid of, of different, you know, of that, which is different of people who are different of opinions who are different. Um, because half the time, you know, we're, when we debate or fight with someone, it's just because our, our amygdala is just totally hijacked and we're firing on so many cylinders that aren't even about what the other person's even talking about. We're just reacting to some perceived threat that's hardwired in us because of how we were, were brought up. And so it's like, so like if I, and, and, and even, um, you know, so I can, I can, as a Christian, I can, I can have a conversation with you who um, doesn't, um, consider yourself a Christian, but it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it, it, like we can have a breadth of beautiful, rich, amazing conversation about body, mind, soul, spirit. And we can meet on so many, uh, there's so much ground on which to share, you know, that um, doesn't have to be about turf wars and religious traditions. And, you know, I mean, even look at Jesus of Nazareth, like, I mean, he was, I think brilliant at engaging people of many different faiths. Um, and he seemed to have the most trouble talking to people of his own religious tradition, you know, <laughs> but when he was talking to people of other religious traditions, he was, 
he was uh people understood him you know it was the people in his own religious tradition that seemed to not but yeah could you uh maybe give us just kind of a a breakdown of i know that you have various steps of mindfulness you know in your your upcoming book could you give us a breakdown of kind of that process yeah well um you know, so I think how I think about it is um, is like this. So um, mindfulness is essentially the, the process of returning to here, okay? Returning to this place called here. It's not there, it, it's not in the future, it's not in the past. And it is returning to here and that here, that moment of here, I believe, and this is so paradoxical, but is eternal. And that is actually where the divine, where we can meet the divine in that, in the here. And the divine waits for us. And however you want to construct the divine, okay? You know, like it's an energy, uh, personal being. I think there's so many different ways of understanding. But so my journey of mindfulness starts with like returning to origin. Is, is, is how I look at it, like re returning to here, returning to origin, returning to true self so that I can uh, respond to reality rather than illusion, okay? Gosh, that's, that's, like, a, that's like a mouthful. But um, I was, my wife Mary um, said something, like I was, I did, I, I put the stuff, the laundry in the, in the washing machine. And there's this one kind of thing that we do with what's one of our, one of the kinds of our clothes. And I did it a little differently this particular time and she noticed it. And I just got so defensive. Like I went through the roof with like, well, are you saying I didn't do it right? Blah, blah, blah. And um, she didn't really mean anything by it. She didn't, she didn't mean what I thought she meant. And so um, when I'm, when I'm practicing mindfulness, I can, I, cause it's not about denying that I just felt really, really triggered. It's not about pretending you didn't feel that, but it's about going, okay, let's, let's let that ride all the way up and let's that ride all the way down and let's return to here, return to origin, return to true self where really I'm safe. Um, and where really I'm not in danger. And where really I can meet my feelings as big as they are. I can meet reality as big as it is. And I can meet Mary as big as she is. But I'm, but I am on this, I'm in this place of safety because I'm, I'm back in the place of origin. Um, and I'm trying to share the story of the laundry to make it as, so that it's not so cerebral. I mean, it's very, like, it's very every moment. You're mad because I was mad you know, before the coronavirus when we could actually be in um, restaurants, I was in the line at Chipotle and it was just taking forever. <laughs> and I was like, this is not, I mean, I started to get mad. And then I returned to here, I returned to origin, I returned to reality. And I laughed at myself. I was like, what? I mean, this is so silly that like, why am I so important that I have to, you know, speed this line up and i i did a little pete holmes trick did you know pete holmes he's this comedian from la no he's hilarious but he one of his mindfulness tricks is 
to, to get him out of reactivity and out of illusion is to imagine that he's watching himself as a character on a TV show, right? And so like, when you do that, you just get just enough detachment where you can, like, you love that character. Like, you kind of love that that character got defensive at his wife because he did a lot. That's cute. It's endearing. It allows you to have some self-compassion while, while also recognizing, okay, there, there needs to be growth here for sure. Um, but it's a way of returning to origin. It's a way of returning to here. And so, um, like, that, that's where it starts. And, you know, some of the practices that I talk about in my book, attentiveness um, is about relearning how to see, right? And so one of my friends, he has a practice when he does email um, that he doesn't send an email and before closing his eyes and picturing the person's face in his mind and remembering two or three things that he likes about the person and it feels grateful for about the person. And then he rescans the email to see if it is consistent with the way he really feels about the person. You know, that's mindfulness. You know, that really is returning to here, returning to origin, returning to reality. And sometimes when you do that, you look back through your email and you go, oh my gosh, like I was really a jerk, right? I didn't even know because I was moving so fast, right? Unreality, illusion is, is when we get defensive, you know? Because we have to defend some version of ourselves that aren't isn't even true, um, you know the version of ourselves that gets laundry right every single time, you know, <laughs> or or whatever. So um, so attentiveness is 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 learning how to see moments like my friend does, like an opportunity as as opportunities to return. Um, and there are other practices, but um, I'll stop there for 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 now. Yeah, I find that that's really interesting with especially the attentiveness part to me where we, we can so often be blinded. We can blind ourselves due to emotion and feeling like an injustice has happened to us. And it's interesting how taking ourselves away from that and just looking at ourselves for a second, how, how much they can change our actions. How is, is there any ways that you've um, seen that really, really help people? Can you give examples of how you've seen that really work well for people in their lives? Yeah. Um, so I have a little team of people that I work with. Um, just five of us, a little team, it's four women and me. And um, we, you know, from time to time, like one of them is like the really on the team, her job is to keep us organized. And she's very gifted at it, right? She's extremely gifted. And from time to time, we'll notice her apologizing for organizing us. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, like when you're in a room with someone and they're like, okay, sorry, you know, sorry to be the detail person, but you know, we really got to like develop a workflow for this or else. And, um, and then because we all really like each other and we all know each other pretty well, one of us might say to that person, um, like kind of, kind of, kind of smile, you know, and, and we'll ask, like, hey, I, I just, you know, I noticed that you, you kind of apologize for doing what we all enjoy that you do and what we all love that you do and sort of like, like, why did you apologize, you know? 
And, and at times that person will then um, share something about, you know, where some of the shame from how she is comes from. And what we're doing there is not like this turning the workplace into a therapy session. But what we are doing is that we're naming like, there's the you that is is you underneath all the organizing and separate from the organizing. And then there's a you that um, is gifted at organizing and has gotten affirmed for organizing. But that very same you that's gotten affirmed for organizing has also probably gotten shamed for it, right? Because that's how everything works. That's that's the dualistic mind where the things that we're best at, we're also, that's our shadow. And so when you have that moment where you can break out of that mode, you you can return someone's humanity to them. And so tears often come. Like if you have a moment where someone allows you to see yourself differently than you have seen yourself and points out that maybe you're even believing some of the bullshit that is, you know, like that my organization is bad or that my creativity is bad. Then um, I, you see people either laugh or cry because something just got broken. Like the, the endless drum beat of how normal false self stuff just keeps marching right along without even being aware of it gets that that march gets broken and um people become aware of of the deeper self that exists beyond that thing that they either get totally affirmed for or that they get shamed for and that thing again when we identify our worth by that thing whatever it is you're either going to get affirmed for it or get shamed for it. And there's a you beneath that, that attentiveness and restoration is another practice I talk about in the book, which is about welcoming the, the fragility and weakness in yourself so that you can welcome it in, in others and thereby um, return their humanity to them. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like too, acknowledging our imperfections is such a freeing thing and I think especially within um you know a Christian context I don't I don't know if that necessarily happens enough you know where we're able to have discussions of humility and just kind of meeting people for where they're at um so how would you say that mindfulness can be a very positive thing as we you know navigate multi-faith discussion and a lot of these discussions even within the church that for a lot of conservative people you know could could be kind of a point of contention. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I think for first of all, people need to practice it, you know? And so that that is that and and it takes a kind of um maturity is not quite the right word, but but just simply practice so that you like people need to be aware of when they're getting triggered and when they're that triggering is taking them down a road that and then they're going to say something or accuse someone of doing something that simply isn't true. And so, but when we're practicing mindfulness, again, returning to here, returning to origin, moving a little bit more toward true self, we can, we actually do meet each other's humanity and fragility and weakness. And that's vulnerable. 
And when you're in a mutual place of vulnerability, then you realize all the things you've been defending and, you know, the truths you've been defending. Talk about inner interfaith dialogue. Ibu Patel is a great interfaith practitioner for years. And um, I think the, the magic of interfaith dialogue is not when people are just super safe and pretending that we all really believe the same thing because we really don't, right? <laughs> I mean, like to say that we all believe the same thing, it's all kind of the same is to demean each one of our convictions. But when we can come with fragility and weakness and drop the defenses, which I think, I don't know if other, other than mindfulness, which takes us out of the reactive mind and into the receptive place. Um, I, I don't know of any other method that can help us be honest and hold our convictions but also do so with a lots of hospitality. And um, I think it, it like imagine it as a table that's set and um, mindfulness allows us to share the meal together while like serving each other and feeding each other and being nourished by each other versus getting into theological food fights, you know, because that's what's going to happen if we're just defending what we believe. There's, there's really, when you get to the place of centeredness, I really think your defensiveness goes all the way down to almost zero because you just don't need to defend anything, right? And interfaith dialogue gets torpedoed by defensiveness. And if that could be erased we could just learn from each other, you know, I think. And I'm not, it's not that simple. It's certainly not simple, but I don't think it's as hard as we make it. I really love that illustration of the, of everybody can eat together. Cause I think that also explains how we feel after a conversation. Cause if yeah. we, if we don't listen to each other, then you leave and you're just kind of frustrated and kind of mentally hungry. But then when we can actually listen to each other and have a discussion, we just feel so much fuller afterwards. Oh, I love how you said that, like mentally hungry versus feeling full afterwards or satisfied, nourished. And I love that you took it to there. Like we all know how, it, or most of us know how it feels to have a really robust, beautiful, mutually respectful conversation. You do, you leave there feeling bigger you know, feeling more expansive. And it's not about that you won something or lost something or won the fight or lost the fight. It's more like we, we, we disrupted the idea of debate and fighting and found a different playground on which to discover something new, you know, and that's, I just don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy that when they experience it, you know? Um, and so yeah, like I, I got mentored for the last 10 years by a Jewish rabbi, you know, and, for, and that was one of the most expansive experiences of, of my life because there are things that we really believe differently, but, but in every way he, well, number one, he expanded what I believe, but number two, he expanded my, my uh, construct of who, who really like gets it and who doesn't, you know? <laughs> Um, cause he gets it, you know, and he's not a Christian, you know, so 
my 20 year old self would have not known what to do with that. You know, but now it just can be a mystery, you know, it's okay. I like the mystery is just so important nowadays because there's so much, especially in the age of information, there's so much to know. There's so much information out there. Well, you nailed it. We're living in a time right now where our brains and our bodies simply cannot process all the information that's coming at us at at all. And it's, and it's, it has increased exponentially in our lifetime, you know? So, um, if we're not going to rely on certainty, which now, you know, it's like, now we can read everybody's opinion on every single event that happened times 20 million and every single moment of every single day. So now you either have to rely on, well, I'm going to get my sources from my trusted places and I'm going to be certain because, you know, I am just reading the carefully curated algorithms that are created to make me feel right, you know, and that's what a lot of us are doing mystery says and by the way richard Rohr, father richard Rohr, he's a theologian he's a catholic theologian he says you know when we say god is mystery we're not saying that god is unknowable we're saying god is endlessly knowable and i think that can be translated to any other any other thing too like mystery says you are not unknowable you're endlessly knowable so am i and so if we uh if we move toward each other with curiosity and lack of defensiveness coming from a place that's more playful and vulnerable and less guarded and less making sure that I'm going to impress you by what I say or, or anything like that, then we're going to have more conversations that feel like the way you described it, that feel expansive and that feel that we feel energized. And, and what that is, I think is, is when we connect with the unitive force of the universe right that holds it all together we when we when we touch that when we enter that space it's like our our electrons and neurons are firing right because because we've just entered into how things should be for a moment you know and conversely when we're just going like this with someone else and we just can't hear them we can't express to them we feel the opposite right right that like um that something in the fabric of the universe that should be woven together is being ripped apart. And we feel the pain of that, I think, um, even though we don't know how to call it pain or grief, um, but it is. Yeah. And kind of to kind of start wrapping up, uh, Steve, what would be the one takeaway you would want listeners um, to have, you know, moving forward when it comes to mindfulness, whether they be Christian or non-Christian? I think it's a pathway. So practicing mindfulness, returning to here, returning to origin, returning to reality is a pathway to uniting with that which is most real, most beautiful, and most true, no matter what you believe. Um, and so it's, it's, it's refusing to live with the illusion of the self that you are identified by that has to be perfect or be successful or be whatever it has to be. And instead it's, it's moving toward the you that exists um, sort of hidden. And again, whether you're Christian, um, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, but so like, 
finding the you that is hidden within the fabric of the universe um, at its truest nature. And it's, it's living from that place. It's living from the place of being content instead of content to stare out the window at times, instead of always so driven to accomplishing the next thing, to getting even to the next thing. You know how much time we spend? Oh, I can't wait till this is over. Even on vacation, only four days left of vacation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I do that. And then we get home from vacation. We're tired from our vacation, you know, because we've been, anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a way to return to here where you exist. And that you that exists is hidden within the vine, however you want to phrase that, call that. And that is a safe place to be where you can be less defensive, less reactive, less driven by your impulses um, and more free to learn, to love, to interact with beauty where you find it. You know, I tell a story in the book about my son, Ben, when he was four, we were raking leaves and he goes, daddy, daddy. And he had found behind this pine tree, this little plastic red rose that like someone had planted in the ground <laughs> like for what reason i don't know like someone planted a plastic red rose in the ground behind a pine tree and my son ben saw it and he was just entranced by it you know and i was busy raking the leaves and trying to get it done and when i saw his bright blue eyes sparkling and seeing this beautiful moment it just it took me to this place of here and origin and true and beauty. And um, I wanna live more from that place, you know, but mindfulness trains you that you don't have to be taken away and, and hijacked by all the feelings that would lead you to believe that that moment is not reality, right? That your work is reality and accomplishment is reality and, you know, getting your next need met is reality. And I just think that's the, that's the trick. Well, what an amazing discussion with Steve. We really hope that you were able to take away some actionable tips and advice wherever you may be on your faith and spiritual journey. And you can always find Steve over on Twitter or Instagram at Steve Weens. We'll put the links into the description of this episode. And we also quickly just want to thank everybody who tunes in every week to the What the Faith podcast. Uh, we love hearing from people. We receive messages almost daily from people all across the nation and even a few people from other countries of what this content is doing in your life and what it means to you. And so we just want to quickly you know, make a point to say thank you so much for tuning in every week. And we hope to continue coming out with content uh, that is positive uh, on your journey and just learning and being curious about faith. So we hope you have a great rest of your week and we will be back next Wednesday with another episode. <laughs>